Um, what a beautiful day today. I really hope you get the chance to enjoy this afternoon and tomorrow and then it ends. But it'll be nice while it lasts. Um, also, it's... Where did they, they, they put this up on Wednesday, hey? Like, I'm always a little dubious when there's something that sort of... Like, this interferes with my path to the coffee place at the Great Dane. And when there's... You're in a university, you're like, is this a social experiment? Like, are they just seeing the lengths that we will go to get to that coffee place? Pretty far. Um, let's get back into it. So, when we finished last week, or last class, I was talking about how judicial review remedies are discretionary, right? They come from the equitable, um, the courts of equity, the historical roots in equity. And this means that you don't have to just convince a court that you satisfy the prerequisites to get a remedy. You also have to convince the court that you should get a remedy. And I talked about a few of the reasons a court might be um, not inclined to give you a remedy. You know, I talked about delay. And I talked about adequate alternative remedies. It was another component we had talked about. Um, and I did just want to make a, a comment on that point of adequate alternative remedies. Um, and I had said it in the context of, well, is there a way to maybe do a review within the statute? Um, is there a, an appeal mechanism, an ability to do a reconsideration, something like that, that you haven't exhausted yet? You haven't exhausted your internal remedies before coming to the courts for this you know, kind of exceptional remedy of judicial review. And so it's an important thing to consider when you're advising your clients, you know, if you see an internal mechanism, you're going to say, boy, I'm probably going to have to go this route unless I can get a really good reason to get around it. Um, but one point to just not lose sight of is it isn't just alternative remedy, but there is that, you know, word adequate at the beginning. So you may be able to fashion an argument that says, look, this, this internal review is just not going to do it for my client. Um, there's a limit on what's available, or perhaps there's systemic bias that I want to allege that really can't be determined within this context. Um, so there's some areas where a alternative remedy will not be deemed adequate, um, but they're relatively limited. And also just sort of a bare allegation of bias isn't gonna do it. You know, you can't just say, I, I think this guy was discriminatory or prejudiced against me, and I think you are going to be too. Courts aren't going to buy that. They're going to say, well, give the person a chance. You have to go with the internal remedies first. So it's a minor point, but a, a relatively important one for your practice. You really want to keep in mind um, before you go to judicial review, uh, you know, th these things that come up at the outset, you know, availability of remedies and whether you're going to face a bar to getting one of those remedies, these are very important things because if you get off on the wrong footing, right, a mistake at the start can cause your client just horrible grief and can land you in a really uncomfortable spot. So you really want to, at the outset, think, what can I get as terms of remedy from this tribunal? What could I get from the court? And is there something the court's going to have a hard time accepting you know, before allowing me to invoke this remedy of judicial review, this extraordinary remedy of judicial review? Um, so with that sort of brief comment, I now want to launch into, well, what are the remedies you can get from the court? So you've gone to an admin tribunal, you're not happy with what they did, you're um, concerned they may have exceeded their jurisdiction one way or another, either by issuing an unreasonable decision or acting in an unfair way. And another jurisdictional ground that you can you can argue. You want to go to judicial review. What do you do? What can you get if you go to judicial review? And the answer again lies in equity and in these old equitable writs. The writs of certiori, prohibition, mandamus, a declaration, the writ of habeas corpus, or quo warranto. These are the traditional equitable forms of relief that you can plead for in these equitable writs. 
And these are still the basis upon which the courts will grant relief in relation to an administrative tribunal. I've put stars on three of them because these are the important ones. Prohibition, habeas corpus, and quo warranto, you will almost certainly not have to touch in your career. Maybe prohibition, but like really probably not. These three are the important ones. And what's important really is not to know, um, you know, the, these names even are that, aren't even that important. What's important is to know the gist of what can be obtained. Like what is the actual relief that the courts are gonna give you? Um, you know, I, I realized how little I actually deal with the, you know, the word certiori. Because A, I'm not totally convinced I'm pronouncing it correctly. And B, I can't spell it. Every time I write in my notes, I get like red underline. I'm like, well, what did I mess up this time? But so it's, it's not something that you actually uh, invoke directly in the sense that you go to court and say, I want certiori and I spelt it correctly in my brief. It's rather the idea of certiori is what you almost always go to ask for. And search your as the idea you're going to quash, set aside the decision. It's the most basic form of relief when something's happened that's outside of the jurisdiction of the tribunal. What's the court going to do? They're going to say, that can't stand. I ordered that that decision is set aside. It's quashed. It's a nullity. It has no legal effect. What's the next step? Well, ordinarily, go do it again. Go answer the question properly. So, certiori means to bring the record before the court and to ask the court to set aside the decision. This is the most important and most often invoked remedy, even if you don't always use that terminology. You'll say on your application for judicial review, I want this decision set aside and remitted to the tribunal for reconsideration. I say that every time. Just about. That's why I think it's R A R I. That's probably where you read the record. Okay, very good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so if I have a red pen, <laughs> underline it on this. Again, spell check does have it. Right click and you'll get the right one. So I don't say it right, I don't spell it right, but I do invoke it regularly. So there you go. This next writ, prohibition, um, still you know, available and used, but effectively it's an equitable injunction which tells a tribunal to not take jurisdiction over a decision, over a matter. And so what you may see this come up most often is if there's two tribunals who both say I have exclusive jurisdiction over this dispute. The court might grant an order in the nature of prohibition saying, hey, Human Rights Tribunal, you can't take jurisdiction over this. This has to go to transport or whatever tribunals may be in a dispute. So prohibition, um, available but sort of rarely used and you want to think of it as an injunction in essence, telling a tribunal, don't get involved here. You want it in your tool, you know, in your tool bag in a sense, but it just doesn't come up all that often. Mandamus, next to search URI, is probably the second most important. Declarations too, but mandamus is when the court tells a tribunal to decide a matter. We're going to get into some wrinkles with mandamus today, specifically with the Insight case. But the most traditionally um, proper and used, um, the, most tr the way you usually invoke mandamus is if a tribunal is just not deciding a matter quickly enough or at all. So you want 
somebody to decide whether or not to exercise an executive power, and they just aren't deciding. Because if you want a permit, if you want permission to do something, you apply for it, and they're just not deciding, well, that's as good as a no, right? And you don't want to allow an executive, um, a member of the executive to evade review because they're not making a decision you could quash or set aside. They're just not making any decision at all. They're just sitting on it. This comes up a lot, a lot more than you might think. Sometimes it's, it's directly bad faith. It really is the executive um, wants to just not make a decision that is probably going to go someone's way that they don't want to favor through a decision. Or there's a sort of systemic um, failure to process things quickly. There was a thing a few years back with a dispute between a city and a particular um, development company that had fallen out of favor with some people and they were just not processing their building permits. Just, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get to you on that six months a year, whatever it was. You could, you could really ruin a business that way. I once defended a case um, for the government where somebody was trying to build a mall uh, and they needed an environmental assessment to complete. And the environmental assessment took something like three years to determine if it was you know, justifiable to, um, to bulldoze this ravine. And in the meantime, the company went entirely bankrupt uh, that was trying to build it. So you know, they never invoked this writ. They never asked for a decision, an order that a decision be made. Rather, they went bankrupt and they sued for millions and millions of dollars for the, um, the loss. We'll talk more about that in a second, about the availability of, of um, damages money for breach of a administrative duty, for a failure of the executive to fulfill its obligations. But one of my defenses was, hey, you can't just sit back, wait for um, you know, your damages to accrue, and then say that because a decision wasn't made in such a long period of time, you have a million dollar claim against the government. Rather, you had another remedy. You could have gotten, you could have applied for a writ of mandamus. So if you are feeling that there's been undue delay on your client's behalf, um, something's just not happening that needs to happen, you could file for an order in the nature of mandamus to require a decision be made. Ordinarily, this is the, the key point, ordinarily, it's not the court saying, give this person a building permit. Say they pass the environmental assessment. It's just the court saying, make a decision, right? Decide one way or the other. What we'll see with insight, though, is it is possible to, through an order of mandamus, direct that a particular decision be made. And that's a controversial proposition uh, in some sense, and we'll talk a bit more about it when we get to that case. So just to sort of recap, you've got quash, you've got injunction to stop you from taking jurisdiction, you've got order to make you make a decision. The next one you have, you're probably familiar with already, declaration. It's where the court declares the law to be something declares something to be required. Declarations are uh, valuable, especially as against the government, because the government is expected to comply with declarations. And the reason they're expected to comply with declarations is rooted in the rule of law. There's a notion there'd be a rule of law crisis if the government did not comply with declarations. Why declarations are used is a bit of a workaround because traditionally, and it's still in statute, the courts couldn't order injunctions as against the crown. That's a prohibition explicitly set out in the Crown Liability and Proceedings Act 
and there's provincial legislation, the Crown Proceedings Act, which has a similar uh, prohibition on injunctions as against the government. And it comes from the sort of historical roots in the idea of the Crown indivisible and these different branches of government being all traceable back to the Crown and the idea that the, you know, the, the power to enjoin, to order something must happen stems from the same crown as the body that is being enjoined. And so there was a disconnect there was the theory that you know, the crown can't enjoin itself was the kind of the basis for this prohibition on injunctions. But the workaround is the courts are the part of the, you know, this bigger crown body that has the responsibility over the law. And if that part says the law is this, the expectation is the balance of the crown will listen to that and it won't cause a fundamental rule of law crisis by, by doing so. So the courts have said, look, we can't give injunctions, we can make declarations, and declarations as against the crown are just as good as injunctions because they're expected to be complied with. So declaration, declare the law or declare a state of facts to be, to have particular legal consequences. These are the three you really need to know. Prohibition, know what it is. Habeas corpus and quo warranto, see them today and you can basically forget about them for admin law purposes. You probably know about habeas corpus. Uh, it finds its root in the idea that if the state is gonna hold somebody, uh, there's a right for that person to be presented to a decision maker, uh, a judge, in essence. Show me the body is the, uh, the root of habeas corpus. Um, show me the body that you are detaining. So criminal law, you'll come back to habeas corpus, or you probably already have. Uh, quo oranto technically means like, by what warrant? And it's a writ that requires the executive to explain the basis upon which they are taking an action. You effectively say, hey, executive, I hear you're doing this. Why? What's going on? It's never used now. Uh, you, like, you don't want the executive just to tell you what's going on. If you're the affected individual, you know, you want the executive decision set aside if you're unhappy with it, or you want a decision to be made, or you want a declaration about what the, uh, the law requires in, in your circumstance. Just sort of an exploratory, explanatory remedy. It's, it's, it's just never used. I, I've never heard it used. I can't give you an example when it's been used in recent times. So that one you can sort of forget about. It's, um, it's on the list because it's an equitable remedy, an equitable writ. So, as I said at the outset, I'm not extremely fussed with you framing um, these remedies that you seek within the context of describing these, these old equitable writs. But I am very concerned that you think about what is available on judicial review. What is available is set aside the decision, to require a decision be made or to declare something about the law or the facts as they apply to that law. You'll see as we go through that while these are somewhat limited, um, you know, there's really the three main remedies that are available. When you combine them, you can get you know, quite powerful uh, relief for your client. You'll know what's not here is, you know, the writ of pay me some money. That is not part of the equitable relief that's available through judicial review. So if you want to get money because you're upset with the way the executive has treated you, you're upset with the decision, that may be possible, but it's not coming through an application for judicial review you have to sue in tort. You have to find a tort that fits, and usually you're looking at either negligence or misfeasance in public office. And then you have to get around the defense of statutory authority, and when you're dealing with that defense of statutory authority, that's where 
you're going to see the, um, in essence, embedded administrative law decision where the court's going to be looking and seeing, well, hold on, you know, was this state actor acting pursuant to valid statutory authority? That's the Ron Corelli case, right, where we saw the question of, well, does he have a complete defense to this action for damages because he was just acting within the scope of his discretion, you know, discretion that Chief Justice Cartwright said is untrammeled and, and infinite in his dissenting opinion. And the majority said, no, that discretion is not untrammeled. It's got its limits. It's got to be in accordance with the purpose of the statute. I find that this was outside the purposes of the statute. There's no defense. The, the action for damages can proceed. So that's the, again, we're, we've touched on this before, but this intersection between tort and administrative law comes in when you're trying to determine within an action for tort whether the executive was acting within the scope of its statutory authority. For a long time, that was a real procedural pain because the law said you had to get that determination done first within an application for a judicial review. And then if you succeeded in that application for judicial review, you could then go and ask for money damages in a separate action. You had to start two proceedings for a while. That changed with a case that's mentioned in your book, Telezone. So Telezone is a case where you had, um, I think it was the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, and they have this call out, like, we're going to open up some new stations. We have a, a few new stations that are available. Um, who wants to have the airspace to broadcast these new stations? Telezone tries to get, you know, get one of them. Doesn't succeed. They give them to other people. The company suffers big damages. So they sue, saying that you, you, know, you screwed this up somehow. And the defense, the, 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 you know, the crown lawyers say, ha-ha, you didn't bring an application for judicial review first. You're out of luck. You can't sue. Um, the Supreme Court says, hold on. If what you really want is money, it doesn't make sense to go say, go off and do a judicial review that's you know, probably could face a mootness argument because those stations are given out. We can't go back and take it away from the person who has it and who's invested all this money in you know, putting out that getting their, you know, their business up and running. Um, there's only so many of these available. You know, you, you don't, we can't give you anything on judicial review, so it's an artificial exercise to make you go there. So they say, forget it. If what you want is money, uh, you can just go straight to an action, even if it's going to require the court to determine the legality of executive conduct. So you... Why I bring this up again is I really want to underscore this point that when you're thinking of the remedies for your client, you want to let them know, hey, uh, look, I can get you another kick at the can, maybe. I can get you uh, a decision if none's being made. In extreme circumstances, I'll talk more about that, I may be able to get the court to tell the tribunal how to decide your case. I may be able to get the court to to you know, stop this tribunal from messing around with you and to give you what you need. But I can't get you any money. And I'm not gonna get you, I may be able to recover costs, I may get legal costs, but they're not gonna cover what I'm actually gonna charge you either. So it's, you know, you, you're not gonna, you're gonna lose money on this proposition. And you know, it's one of the things about admin law is when a new client calls you up, you're like, all right, let's, let me tell you a whole bunch of bad news right at the start and you know, try to convince you not to go ahead with this almost. And then if they actually uh, have something they can really benefit from one of these things, you go ahead. But quite often people say, well, what do you mean? You know, this costs me money. I, how am I not going to recover that? Well, it's just not available in judicial review. Uh, yeah. It is possible to do both, absolutely, but um, the, the one distinction is they'll want you to do the judicial review promptly because it will likely have the effect of mitigating your losses, right? If, you, um, if there's something like a building permit 
that you're not getting, and you think that um, you should be getting it, the court would say, hey, uh, you've definitely suffered a loss here, but your loss will stop once you get that permit. So we expect you to go promptly to try to get that judicial review accomplished. Uh, and then it may be possible to sue for the loss as well. But if there's, um, if there's still a remedy that's effective for you within judicial review, you're expected to go pursue it as quickly as possible. And a failure to do so may be a defense to the damages claim. The, the court may say, look, I know you suffered damages, but you had a remedy right here. You didn't take it. So that, that falls on you. All right, so final sort of brief point I want to make before I get into the cases for today is about the statutory reform that's been done to judicial review procedure. This is a sort of nuanced issue. We'll come back to these acts and this question of the statutory reform to judicial review procedure. But you'll note when I was talking, um, and I almost do it by habit, I said you'll go to the court and ask for relief in the nature of mandamus or mandamus, or in the nature of uh, certiorari. And the reason that you say in the nature of is because you don't actually go and comply with the strict requirements of the old equitable writs and bring that forward as the basis for your for your judicial review that's all been simplified in every jurisdiction in Canada except for the Yukon I don't know why but everywhere else there's statutes which expressly say something along the lines of, you can bring a petition for judicial review, and if you bring a petition, you can get relief in the nature of certiorari, prohibition, mandamus, declaration, habeas corpus, etc. In British Columbia, it's the Judicial Review Procedure Act that allows that. The Judicial Review Procedure Act creates this right to proceed by a regular old petition to the court. That's one of two types of originating documents in civil litigation, the other being a notice of civil claim. Uh, if you haven't taken civil procedure, you, know, you'll, you will learn about these things and it's, it's rather important. So you bring a petition, say relief sought, yeah, you could say relief of the nature of certiorari setting aside or quashing the decision of the residential tenancy branch. But you can also just say a decision quashing or setting aside the, uh, you know, the determination of the residential tenancy branch. So they kept the nature of the relief, but they've moved away from the strict formalities that used to characterize the way you had to bring forward these kinds of pleas for equitable relief. It's just made things easier. That's why we don't have to worry so much about the formalities of these things, but we do want to know, of course, again, a bit of a broken record, but the types of things that are available. And you also want to keep in mind those roots of this relief in the courts of equity and how that still resonates you know, particularly in that discretionary element of any of this type of relief. Okay, so we'll come back to those acts. Um, the Federal Courts Act does something very similar, and then there's an analogous piece of legislation to the Judicial Review Procedure Act. The JRPA will probably come to refer to it by because we'll talk about it a fair amount towards the end of the course. That and the Administrative Tribunals Act are the two pieces of legislation that really uh, govern quite a bit of judicial review practice and procedure and substance in British Columbia. We'll learn more about those acts as the course progresses. It's beyond the scope today, but flagging them as something we're coming back to. 
All right. So I've gotten through, that was finishing up, in essence, the chapter that we had read for last week. And now we're going to get into the three cases that I have for this week. Uh, the order I want to do them is first the Air Canada case, then the Insight case, and then finally the Cotter case. Uh, the Air Canada case is the only one of the three that's a strict judicial review. Insight is a strange case, and I'm going to show you a really fascinating exchange with the court between Joe Arve, the great lawyer who I, I um, talked about a few classes ago, and the court, where they're basically trying to struggle, like, what are we, is this a judicial review? Shouldn't this be a judicial review? Uh, and it's, it's a really interesting exchange. We'll watch that after the break. Uh, but Insight's interesting because of the window it gives into the nature of an order of mandamus and you know what can possibly be in there. Air Canada, however, is much, this is the routine, this is the rule, this is what's going to uh, you know, be 99.9 .9, you know, times out of 100. The court's going to look at it the way they do in Air Canada, which is to say, to jump to the conclusion before I get into the case, to, to say, look, don't tell the tribunal how to decide the case. If it's unreasonable or if it's procedurally unfair, just set it aside and let them do it again. It's not your job to tell them how to decide the case. It's just your job to tell them when they've gone outside their jurisdiction. That's the big takeaway from Air Canada. But let's talk a bit about the case because it's, for one, it's interesting. And for two, I think that it'll help you understand how you can get to a situation where a decision is found to be unreasonable, and yet the court's very, very careful to say, well, maybe unreasonable, but I'm not telling you how it has to be decided. You might be able to come to the same decision, even though I found the way it got there this time to be unreasonable. All right, so Air Canada is actually argued by my wife. So there you go. Um, so I actually, last night I was like, will you remind me how this case went again? I think that I said in class, I was like, I think there's something like born mid-flight. Not at all what happened. Um, what happened though, it was mid-flight. So you have a flight coming across. It was, I was like, I gotta, she's like, do you wanna sit and have a glass of wine? I was like, I gotta get prepped for class tomorrow. Uh, and then she's like, oh, come on. It's like a nice sunny evening. And I was like, okay. And I was like, aha. I sat down like got a glass of wine. I was like, so what were the facts of Air Canada again? <laughs> so the BC Court of Appeal uh, is the decision we read. But I'll, some of the facts you have to kind of glean from other decisions. So I'm just going to tell you the story. I only gave you the relatively brief uh, section on the remedy. I hope that you all found the, the highlighted places in these places in these cases. So you have this flight attendant, Miss um, Zakel. She's working for Air Canada on a flight from Japan back to Vancouver. When they're somewhere over the Pacific, she starts to smell this strange smell. She investigates, the crew investigates. They track it down to a, um, like a, an electrical box that seems to be overheating. Um, the captain is able to turn off the power to that part of the plane that um, has that box attached to it and thereby stop the, uh, the overheating from going any further and calls in and says, you know, we, it's not an emergency, but I think it's Delta, Delta, Delta is the code. Get us landed as soon as possible because there's something a bit wonky going on our, on our flight. So when they land, it sort of all hits this flight attendant, Mrs. Sakel, she says, oh my God, there was a Swiss air flight that crashed because of um, an electrical overheating. Uh, you know, just like as it turned out to be the case here, it was tied to the in-flight entertainment system. She says, I know also, and now this is true, that if, uh, if a commercial plane is 
is flying over a heavily populated area, they sometimes will even scatter uh, you know, fighter jets to take that plane down. And oh my God, could that have happened to us? Um, and so she, she feels um, anxiety and she takes a little bit of time off work. Not very much time. This isn't like, she didn't try to say I can never work again, but she took a little time off to get her sort of bearings straight. She makes a claim for workers' compensation to say, all right, I, I took a few days off because of um, an injury suffered on the job, a mental injury suffered on the job. So I should be able to, to get uh, some pay for that time off. Workers' compensation and Air Canada is a tremendously complex subject because workers' compensation is a provincially administered and regulated scheme. There's different workers' compensation regimes in every province, property and civil rights. You know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a provincial responsibility. These federal companies like Air Canada that operate throughout the country have a business that by its very nature you know, requires them to be in different jurisdictions and the same workers to be in you know, perhaps three or four different jurisdictions in the same day can be a, you know, an odd fit for this provincial workers' compensation regime. But the way they've resolved that is Air Canada has contracted with the various workers' compensation boards to administer its claims, to in essence determine if people are eligible for workers' compensation under the laws of that jurisdiction, um, to determine how much to actually provide their doctors and their whole infrastructure to administer these workers' compensation claims. And then Air Canada pays it. So WCB tells, tells a worker how much they get and it's no different than you know, what a worker would get from you know, working construction outside of UBC. And then Air Canada actually gives the check. There's a similar deal actually for the federal government. Um, workers' compensation is administered through WCB. So from Air Canada's perspective, They're very happy to have this matter determined by WCB, the Workers' Compensation Board. They want it to be within the British Columbia Workers' Compensation Board's jurisdiction. They just don't want her to be awarded very much money. They, they want to keep the damages low because they have to pay them. And my understanding from talking to Mira, my wife, was that it wasn't obvious at the start of this whole process that she was going to be fine, you know, in a in a short period, and so they were concerned this could be an ongoing injury that could, you know, be a, a big amount of money. So you have a bit of a, like a crazy up and down, back and forth um, internally within the WCB Workers' Compensation Board process. So it goes to the you know she makes a claim, it goes to the Workers' Compensation Board. They say, yes, indeed, you were injured in the course of your work. You're entitled to compensation. Air Canada says, hold on, don't agree. I think you overlooked something. They ask for actually an internal review at the WCB, the board, the lower level. That's another available remedy. The internal review says, no, it was right. Uh, you know, she is entitled to compensation. I think somehow it actually goes up and down twice in this internal review. At the end of the second time, Air Canada says, okay, we're going to the next level, WCAT, the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. The Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal says, really interesting, uh, this question of whether you know her her mental injury was suffered on the job or whether it was some kind of pre-existing thing. Uh, but I want to know about the jurisdiction. They, they, they raise it. Now both Mrs. Akel, the worker, and Air Canada, they're both like, no, we want to be here. Like, just, just decide this. We're, we're all happy to be here. 
But when there's a jurisdictional question, and this is an important point that um, I haven't made yet, I will make again. It is not sufficient that both sides just agree to be there. You can't get jurisdiction by consent. It needs to be given to the board by statute. So the WCAT, Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, they say there's no jurisdiction here. They say, Ms. Zakal, she may be a flight attendant who takes off from and leaves from Vancouver. Maybe that's where her, you know, the, the flights are based. But she's hardly ever here. She spends by far most of her time outside of the province, frankly, a lot of it outside of the country. She doesn't even live in British Columbia. She lives in Manitoba. So she flies from Manitoba to here. She'll do some work on these Trans-Pacific flights. Then she'll work a flight back home to Winnipeg, and that's where she lives. So she doesn't live here. She doesn't spend very much time here working. You know, at most, she kind of comes to British Columbia to wait to take off. So they determine that there's not a sufficient connection to British Columbia to bring this dispute within the jurisdiction of the workers' compensation regime in British Columbia. Uh, the test is very similar to the conflict of laws, real and substantial connection. It's a sufficient connection test. So that's the issue that goes up on judicial review. Is there jurisdiction here over this dispute? This is a nice case because it's very clear that we're talking about a jurisdictional issue. Um, you don't have to get into the more esoteric, you know, when you act unreasonably, you're outside of your implied jurisdiction ideas that we've been, I've been really trying to prime for the last couple of classes. Rather, this is just straight up. This is a BC tribunal. I don't think this really happened in British Columbia type argument. You go to the, um, the first level of judicial review. You go to the BC Supreme Court. And the chamber's judge allows the judicial review. Says, no, I can't let this jurisdictional decision finding no jurisdiction stand. In so doing, he makes very clear, though, that the notion there is not jurisdiction here over this dispute is absurd. He particularly takes issue with the board's consideration of the fact that this flight attendant lived in Manitoba. And he's like, give me a break. You're telling me that if you had two flight attendants on the same flight based out of the same city and they have the same injury and they land in the same place and make the same claim, and one of them lives you know, in Alberta or Manitoba, wherever it may be, and the other one lives in Vancouver, they're gonna get different results. They have the same job. Like, this is workers' compensation. How, that, how is that possible? This is the absurdity that the trial chamber's judge locates. So he sets that out in very strong reasons. What's the remedy he orders? says, quash, set it aside, reconsider it in light of my reasons. Goes up to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal panel happens to include uh, Justice Harvey Groberman, who's probably the sharpest admin law person on that court. Justice Groberman deals with some really interesting procedural questions. We're going to come back to this case, I think, when we talk about um, evidence on judicial review. But Justice Groberman says, look, I agree 
that the reasoning process of the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal was flawed. There was binding guidance on this very question of determining how close of a connection you need and whether residency matters for your connection to the province. There's binding guidance that they just don't consider, that WCAP just seems to have ignored. This is internal guidance given by WCAT that is expressly meant to be binding on its decision makers to get some consistency on important points. So he says, it was unreasonable. It was patently unreasonable, I think is a standard he had to get to. It was patently unreasonable to make this decision in the way that you did. To make this decision by, that, that ignored or didn't consider this binding guidance. But he says, however, I'm not going to agree with the chamber's judge, with the BC Supreme Court. I am not going to agree with the proposition that the result was necessarily absurd. He says, you may have made a decision that can't stand because of what you didn't consider. And I need you to go consider that. And I need the substance of your decision to address this, this point. I do not, however, want to purport to say you necessarily are going to have to go the way of finding that there is jurisdiction over this dispute. I am not going to allow that to be predetermined. The key paragraphs are paragraphs 80 through 83 of the decision. And this is what you want to take away from this case as the kind of guiding light of what the remedy should be on a judicial review in most cases. And that would be, if there's something that's outside of the jurisdiction, you, you quash or set aside the decision, but you don't predetermine how it's going to go when it goes back to the tribunal. So paragraph 80, Justice Groverman says, I am unable to agree the result described by the judge is an absurd one. Section 8 of the Act is obviously meant to apply to some claims. Where it applies, it makes the province of residence of a claimant a decisive factor in determining whether the claimant qualifies for compensation. While that might appear a curious legislative choice, it cannot be considered an absurdity. It's a legislative line drawing exercise. So he says, hold on. This idea that it matters where you live, I can find that in the legislation. So we can't go saying it's absurd to consider that as a factor. Then he says, 81, this is really the key paragraph. Though the reasons provided by the WCAT do not stand up to scrutiny, I am not at present convinced that the result reached by the tribunal is clearly wrong. Accordingly, I am unable to endorse the chamber's judge's implicit direction, implicit direction to the tribunal that it must assume that Ms. Zakel's claim, if substantiated, will entitle her to compensation. On the other hand, the chamber judge's rationale for finding Ms. Zakel to be eligible to make a claim under Section 5.1 of the Compensation Act is a reasonable interpretation of the statute and one that is open to the WCAT. The Workers' Compensation Act, Part 82, the Workers' Compensation Act and the Administrative Tribunals Act that other legislation I said we get back to, provide the WCAT with broad final authority, broad final authority to interpret the statute in cases such as this one. This court is not entitled to usurp that power by mandating that the tribunal adopt a particular interpretation of the statute where more than one reasonable interpretation is possible. In the result, sends it back for redetermination. If you only take you know, one thing from this whole lecture on remedies, I would say it's to really understand paragraphs 81 and 82 of the Air Canada case, to really understand that the remedy ordinarily is going to be set aside the decision, send it back, but leave the tribunal with its proper role of being the interpreter of its own legislation for the court not to force a particular interpretation on the tribunal.
You'll note Justice Grogerman says, look, Chambers Judge, you set out an interpretation. And you know what? I agree. That's a reasonable interpretation. So he's telling Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, if you were to interpret it, you know, to find jurisdiction on the basis the Chambers Judge did, that is reasonable. That's one reasonable interpretation. But what's he also saying? I'm not convinced it's the only reasonable interpretation. There may be other reasonable interpretations out there. It's not for me to say which of those interpretations you must arrive at. So that's the general rule. Set aside a decision, give it back, but do no more than is necessary to explain why you're setting aside the decision because you don't want to prejudge or demand a particular interpretation because that's not your job. That's the job of the tribunal. You're just checking to make sure they stay within jurisdiction. You're not stepping in to decide the case. Does that make sense? It's a really, really key point, and so I went sort of slowly, but um, it'll probably feel like it makes sense and it'll get more fuzzy as we move forward. Um, but this is a, an idea we want to really take with us out of remedies. I love when, I don't know why, but when they call it the W cat, it just kind of tickles my amusement. And it reminds me of, I'm sorry, I'll tell a little funny story. So, when my wife, so the reason she knows the case so well, she used to work for the WCAT, and one of her colleagues went up north to do a hearing up in like Fort St. John or Prince George, and he gets his hotel bill, and the person's like, that'll be $110, and he's like, his name was uh, Walter, he's like, what are you talking about, like $110, and it says 100 and she's like, yeah, no, $100, for you and then $10 for the cat. He's like, <laughs> she's like, it says right here, Walter with cat. <laughs> so I love that story. Um, all right, so important case, important takeaway as to what the ordinary scope of the relief is going to be. Um, Let's take our break now. I'm going to set up the video so we can see um, this bit of Joe Arve and talk a bit about insights. Um, so let's come back at um, you know 1135.